1: The FT.
2: On the show this week, the UK budget.
3: I think the positive news from the budget, the Green Investment Bank has been established and will potentially receive a further 2 billion in capital.
4: The
2: future of the energy
4: mix. Seems to me that the big loser of this debate is going to be nuclear power, particularly on the developed world, Japan and Germany in particular.
2: The uranium market.
5: You can pick any pure uranium producer, whether it's Cameco, the Canadian major, or smaller companies like Paladin or Uranium One,
1: to see that on average they've fallen about 20% since March 10th.
2: And your comments?
1: The tax on North Sea oil producers. There's quite a lot of anger on the blog about that, actually. Uh, People regard it as quite an inefficient way to raise the money.
2: You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Joining me in the studio this week is William McNamara, the FT's mining correspondent, and the FT's commodities editor, Javier Blas, and we'll be joined later by Karen Stacey, the editor of Energy Source, to tell us about what you've been saying on the blog. Let's start this week's show in the UK and the budget, delivered by Chancellor George Osborne on Wednesday. On the line from Ernst Young as Tony Ward, the head of power and utilities. Tony, I just wondered what you made of the announcements from George Osborne. There's quite a bit in there for the energy sector. If you could just take us through the main ones. The
3: key features, from my point of view, first of all, would have been the confirmation of how the carbon price floor is going to operate from 2013 onwards. What the Chancellor has done is given a clear indication of, of what the floor price will be in 2013 and the fact that it will ratchet up from that point up to 2020. and I think that's really important because I think the industry has been calling for longer-term certainty around issues such as how carbon will be valued. Not everybody, of course, is going to benefit from this. There will be winners and losers in terms of the impact it will have on certain types of generation. But I think it is important in that it does give a clear signal around the value of carbon. So
2: i just jump in there, uh, just to make clear to, to listeners, uh, the reason for the, for the carbon floor price is that the government's sort of saying that this is needed to incentivise investment into uh, renewable forms of energy, including new nuclear.
3: Indeed, I think it, what it is, it's a recognition that the UK has established aggressive targets by 2020 for both renewable energy as a, a part of the total energy mix, but also for carbon emissions. And I think what this floor price is about is to try and give clearer, stronger signals to encourage investment in the types of generation which emit very low amounts of carbon.
2: We got some comments from Drax yesterday, who obviously run Britain's largest coal-fired power station, and they were against the carbon floor price because of what it means for them. I mean, they, they'll, they'll be heavily penalised, at least in the interim, before they heavily invest in things like biomass on that. And I think also the steel industry came out quite critically yesterday, saying it would just increase their cost of electricity massively and obviously you and I will be paying higher bills. So you still think in the longer term this is necessary despite the pain on the way there?
3: I think I do and and, I mean I do recognise that in the short term over the next two three years this will be an additional cost and it is likely to pass through um, directly to consumers bills both you know the domestic consumer and industrial consumers but I think its effect is more important in the medium to long term. Um, And I think there's there's an acceptance on government's behalf that there will need to be a marker in the ground and and a clear indication of the direction of travel. Um, The fact that it's not coming in until 2013 at least gives some lead time.
2: And does it not completely undermine the European trading scheme for carbon?
3: Probably both the current government and, in fact, the previous government in the, in the UK were watching how the EU emissions trading scheme operated and, and whether it actually got to the point where the price for an emissions right was sufficient to actually stimulate a change in physical investment behaviours, a shift away from carbon emitting processes to lower carbon processes. And I think what this is trying to do is to try and ensure that the intent of the EU emissions trading scheme is actually realised in terms of real physical investments. So, yes, it's pushing the UK further ahead, but I think it is a clear statement of intent that actually there is a desire to see the scheme succeed in its objective of changing investment behaviour.
2: And quite a few other things in there for the energy sector.
3: The Green Investment Bank perhaps the expectation before the budget was that the bank may be capitalised with a billion pounds of capital. The purpose of the Green Investment Bank being to to ensure that certain types of investment that may perhaps struggle to attract finance, sort of cleaner, greener investments, either in technology or in deployment, are accelerated. Again, very mindful of, of the 2020 targets that the UK has. Now, I think the positive news from the budget yesterday was that the the bank has been established and will potentially receive a further $2 billion in capital. It's clearly stated that it will eventually have the ability to borrow funds. It won't simply be an equity fund. And there's a, probably a little bit of a sooner delivery of the bank as well than might have been expected. So there are, I think there are reasons to be positive there in terms of how the Green Investment Bank is being taken forward. I think there is still a concern whether this quite goes far enough quickly enough.
2: One other thing just on that, isn't it all just small change? I mean, we're talking £3 billion possibly uh, could leverage itself up to £15 billion. I mean, isn't that all small change in the grand scheme of things when we're facing a £200 billion investment gap?
3: There, there is no doubt that the absolute scale of all of the investments which will be necessary into the sector um, is very substantial. We indicated a figure of £200 billion over the next 10 to 15 years. But I think there are plenty of other sources of capital available. And I think what the Green Investment Bank is about is not simply displacing some of those sources of capital. I think it has a role to play to facilitate the bringing in of that capital. One area that I would say is still not entirely clear is exactly what is the remit of the Green Investment Bank.
2: Thank you very much. Let's move on. Javier, I just wondered... If you could take a big step back, what do the recent events both in Libya and particularly in Japan mean for the global energy mix going forward?
4: Let's go back to Christmas of 2010, so about three months ago. We have oil prices under $100. Uh, the world was betting on a renaissance of nuclear power as a solution for uh, dependence on fossil fuels, but also to, uh, in the fight on global warming. And we were moving away from sources of uh, electricity such as coal. Three months later, we have the unrest in the Middle East, and oil prices are much higher than they were three months ago. And we have the nuclear crisis in Japan, and the world has at least taken a step back from nuclear power. And what is happening now is that the world and policymakers over the next few weeks and months are going to review what is the energy mix for the future. Seems to me, from the latest statements that we are seeing, that the, the big loser of this debate is going to be nuclear power, particularly on the developed world, Japan and Germany in particular. We have Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, saying this week that the world has to move as fast as possible away from nuclear power. This is the same policymaker that only a few months ago signed a landmark agreement in Germany to extend the life of the nuclear power in, in, the, in the country. So it is very clear to me that nuclear power is taking a step back. Whether that step back is going to extend to developing countries is an open question, but for sure some, such as China, are putting a break also on the expansion
2: don't we need something like a stable source of energy which nuclear power does provide?
4: We need that. So if nuclear power takes a step back, something else is going to have to take a step in. That is going to be most likely LNG, so gas could be a benefited. Uh, it's going to be coal, so coal again, that it was getting a renaissance himself in uh, developing countries, particularly in China and India, could be, again, the king call of a few decades ago that it was dominating commodity markets. And uh, we are going to have even reliance on using oil as a source of electricity, burning crude oil as they are going to do in Japan over the next few months as an emergency measure to, bring, uh, to bridge the gap of electricity needs in the country. So it is a lot of debate right now on what the uh, energy mix of the world is going to look for the next 40 years, but the events of the last three months are for sure going to reshape this, and I think that nuclear power could really take a step back.
2: And if if I can bring in uh, Will here um, on on the uranium side of things, when you're talking about nuclear, you're also obviously talking about uranium. Um, What's happened to the share prices of of the sort of big uranium producers over the past 10 days?
5: Well, in short, they've pretty much fallen off a cliff, but it's important to note where they came from, starting about – I'd say mid-summer 2010, the entire uranium mining uh, and producing sector started lifting. And this was in a time, as Javier says, when the world was looking great for the future of nuclear power. Um, China had commissioned something like 30 or more nuclear power stations that are still under construction. India was making noises. South Africa said it, it saw a nuclear future. So anyway, what happened is that from about July until two weeks ago, they were steadily rising say about 30% from where they had been hovering the first half of 2010 and you can pick any pure uranium producer whether it's Cameco the Canadian major or smaller companies like Paladin or Uranium One to see that on average they've fallen about 20% since March 10th uh, their close before the tsunami
2: wasn't there a deal as well that got um, initially called off and then, and then renegotiated at a lower price?
5: ARMZ, the Russian uranium company, had tried to buy a, um, a junior Australian m- miner. ARMZ struck an agreed deal with the management of that little minnow company. The world changed overnight, literally. And um, the deal was, was renegotiated. It's recently been re-agreed at a price about 10 to 15% lower than the original.
2: What are the chief executives saying? I mean, you'd expect them to be bullish given where they come from, but were there any sort of big investment plans planned over the next few months which might now be delayed or even put on hold?
5: Uh, they've been very cautious about that. Some of the biggest producers, some of the biggest uranium producers, are diversified multinationals like Rio Tinto and BHP Billiton, and they've been um, almost annoyingly uh, cautious about making statements one way or another, which means it's actually quite difficult to get a handle on the possible effects on production um, or prices. Uh, In the junior sector, there's been some very colorful statements coming out along the lines of, the world has gone crazy, can everyone stop overreacting already? To be fair about it, there is more than a kernel of truth in that. The massive sell-offs that swept the sector in mid-March, you could argue was pricing in a huge halt to uranium production in the future. You know, the fact of the matter is that that a large component of the world's energy mix is still nuclear. There are nuclear power plants operating today across the developed world. There are ones actively under construction in China that will need uranium fuel in five or ten years.
2: And Javi, what's what's the market saying about all this I mean do you think it's overreacted well
4: the 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 price of uranium fall dramatically it dropped about 30% it has recovered a bit over the last few days it still is, is much lower than it was before i think that that here is is more a question of yes, we are going to need some uranium, but are we going to need as much as we were expecting? Well, probably not. And also, for particularly, that's a big problem for the, the companies who produce only uranium. Obviously, uh, companies such as Rio Tinto or BHP could carry, carry away because they, they, they have synergies and they have many streams of, of revenues, not only the uranium price. For uh, pure players, it could be much more difficult. But I think that uh, what we are seeing here, companies were told to put the plants on the ground. That's what Germany has done. That's what China is doing in terms of new projects going forward. And that's probably what is going to happen in Japan. I mean, uh, I, I see lots of difficulties for the Japanese industry to develop in, in the in the future, even if the country has few or no alternatives to nuclear power. I think that the the, the best case scenario is there are delays and also particularly in developed world. But I think it's going to be across the board. I don't think that the Chinese are going to just be willing to push ahead unless they get absolutely guarantees on safety is uh we're going
5: actually it's interesting because the chinese are pushing ahead and i think that's getting slightly lost is that the uh the bureaucratic language that the Chinese government um, came out with was halting new, new projects. Like like projects that have not even been thought about yet. But what is it, 30,
4: 36? They are are at the moment constructing 27 new nuclear out of 62. So that's... that's, But we know about that and the production, the bullish case about uranium is built about not those 27. It's about a lot more that is coming from China, a lot more that is coming from India. India.
5: And what about the Indian ones? Well, the Indians have
4: said... Absolutely nothing yet, but I think that here the industry, if we have more security imposed in Europe and the United States, I think that those new reactors that they are going to be, at the end of the day, the companies develop a few models of reactors and they're going to be very expensive to do. And the question is if those extra costs Insecurity are going to make nuclear production prohibitively expensive compared to other sources of energy. To me, the main thing is not rather what the policy is going to be, whether governments say yes or no to nuclear power, but whether uh, because of new security, new delays, nuclear power is going to be so expensive that at the end of the day, it's not competitive to, let's say, coal or gas.
2: I think that's a good place to stop it, because I think these are probably the sort of discussions that governments are having, is do you want to be um, you know, killed by pollution at some point, or do you want to be killed by uh, a radioactive leak from a nuclear power plant? So we'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much. Finally, Karen Stacey, the editor of our blog Energy Source, joins us. Karen, what's been going on in terms of discussion online about the budget?
1: We've had quite a lot of discussion on on various different points, but the two things that stand out are the tax on North Sea oil producers. There's quite a lot of anger on the blog about that, actually. Uh, People regard it as quite an inefficient way to raise the money, maybe link the tax to specific assets or or even to profitability.
2: Rather than to the oil price. Exactly,
1: yes. There's also some suggestion that uh, some of the companies will be able to offset the tax by using losses from exploration in other places, but other companies won't be able to do that. So there's a lot of companies saying that this is an unfair move and uh, that they're going to be unfairly penalised. The main thing that people are complaining about is the uncertainty. None of the companies seem to know anything about this before the announcement and suddenly they're scrambling to update all their models and redo their numbers and uh, they're very angry about that but they're also worried about what this means for the future. You know, is the government going to spring surprises on them like this every few years to accommodate for, uh, you know, a consumer that has been put under more and more pressure by, by government fiscal moves
2: i think the, the, the word that the initial association yesterday was using was predictability and and they yes. as you say, they hadn't seen it coming at all yes. and i think last september george osborne was talked about the benefits of having a stable regime in the north sea and you know a few months later uh, he pulls this thing out of the bag so absolutely
1: yeah. it, it looks great for the tv cameras and the, the next day's headlines and, it, and it's quite a canny political move but i think we're yet to see what the consequences are going to be for investors
2: Um, And any any comments at all on on all the other things happening that are impacting on the energy markets, whether that's Japan or Libya?
1: There are a few different things that we've had comments on. Japan and Libya obviously continue to to rumble on, but a few different issues have, have cropped up over the last week. The first is the Ofgem review into the UK Big Six utilities, which was unexpectedly harsh and critical in its tone, I think, of those utilities. And we've had a bit of discussion about whether this is business as usual and Ofgem are just trying to please their political masters by using particularly strong language or whether this is actually a a major change in tack from from the UK regulator. And I think it's still yet to be figured out. Our readers, I think, are a cynical bunch and they seem to think that it will be business as usual and the utilities can breathe easily. Certainly their share prices don't seem to have moved too much on the news.
2: Um, We've got a question and answer session coming up next week. Who have we got?
1: Well, next week we have Keith Parker. He's chief executive of the UK's Nuclear Industry Association. So this is a perfect time really to put in questions about the future energy of the UK, and particularly the role that nuclear has to play in that in the, in the wake of the Japan crisis. Uh, going up on Friday, we have the answers from uh, Francesco Storacci, the chief executive of NL Green Power, who's made some very interesting comments about solar power in Europe. So keep your eye open on, on the blog for that.
2: Thanks very much, Karen. And if you'd like to have your say, do log on and post a comment on Energy Source. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank Javi Blas, William McNamara and Kieran Stacey in the studio and from Ernst Young, Tony Ward. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Philotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye.
3: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin?